Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to the Arts Podcast. Despite all the talk of London 2012, Britain's big or possibly wet summer is shaping up to be something of a 1990s revival, with the Stone Roses reunion gigs the hottest ticket, closely followed by possibly the last ever show by Blur to close the Olympics. The Stone Roses' self-titled debut album was voted the best ever British album in a poll of musicians and writers in 2004. It was the catalyst for the rise of Britpop in the mid-1990s when Blur and Oasis put the cool back into Britannia. With Britain's boosters hoping the Olympics will show London can still swing it with the best in the 2010s, now is an apt time to look back at the renaissance of British rock 20 years ago and ask, was it all it was cracked up to be? And what's its legacy? I'm the FT's pop critic, Ludovic Hunter-Tilney, and with me to shed light on such pressing cultural matters are Richard Clayton and David Cheel, both of whom also write about pop music for the FT. Let's start with the Stone Roses, here singing their paean to modesty, I Want to Be Adored. To the legions of 40-something fans descending on Heaton Park in Manchester at the end of June, they're the greatest band of their generation. To others, they're a jangling crew of 1960s retro rockers with a frontman who sings like a tone-deaf seal. Richard, who's right? (laughs) Well, I'm part of that generation. I was 16 in 1989 when this album came out, and suddenly it sort of all made sense. Um, To continue the theme of immodesty, they had a track called What the World is Waiting For, and, and it felt like that at the time. You have to remember that um, before that, it was the sort of dog days of Thatcherism. Totalitarianism was uh, on the wane in, in Eastern Europe. And the charts were dominated by Stock Aitken and Waterman, basically the Simon Cowell of their day. Um, indie music was sort of underground. Um, the Smiths had uh, broken up. It felt like uh, we were in this sort of wasteland almost. And then suddenly the Berlin Wall came down musically as well as in reality. The Berlin Wall between the mainstream and uh, indie, between dance music and guitar music. And the Stone Roses um, epitomised that. Uh, They blended the funkiness of Sly and the Family Stone with the chiming guitars of uh, the birds, very um, psychedelic sound. OK, Ian Brown couldn't sing, but he could swagger. And a certain uh, young man called Liam Gallagher was watching him in the audience and uh, it would be a great influence on him. And David, were you one of the uh, legions who uh, joined in the adoration of Ian Brown as he called for back in 89? I was a little bit older than Richard, um, so it, it uh, didn't quite have the same impact on me, but I was certainly impressed by it as a debut album. It was, it was seized on a moment when the dance and guitar rock cultures kind of blended. 
the best ever, according to this poll, no. beating the Beatles, the Stones, no, no, Led Zeppelin. I, no, I think that's that's overstating the case. And Richard, how do you think they're going to um, come across now, all of this time later? It's been a long, long time since uh, they last played together. It was a disastrous concert when they last played together in the Reading Festival yeah. back in 95, I think it was. Well, apparently, I was, I was reading in, the, in one of the newspapers today, the, one of their gigs in Amsterdam, that they had some bust-up with uh, Rennie, the, the drummer who famously never leaves the house without his hat, and uh, the other chaps who wanted to have an encore, and, and Rennie wasn't having any of it. So there may be some combustibility on stage, but but frankly, I, I think it'll be great. I mean, I've actually bought a ticket for for this, which is something that uh, I'm so, seldom have to do as a pop critic. Um, pop critic reaches for his own wallet. What yeah, a shock! shock what, a, what a shock. draw for the band of the uh, the band of the nineties. And tell me, there is a problem, surely, with Ian Brown's singing. Uh, yes, yes, but I mean, um, it's it's not always about the voice, is it? It's about it's it's about the presentation. It's about how you carry it. There was just something about him, and he had this whole sort of monkey man kind of dance, didn't he? And and the, even the way he held himself on stage was uh, just sort of confrontational, insolent. Um, it, it it was just something about uh, where he was coming from um, that 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 was sort of reached out to to so many people. I think. David, where do you stand on reunions? The Stone Roses had a very bitter, um, acrimonious split when Ian Brown and John Squire, the guitarist, fell out very badly. They swore they would never speak together. The chances of them playing together seemed vanishingly small. I won't speculate as to what has got them back together, although I dare say that it may involve a few noughts. I think the paycheck is probably the <laughs> where best do you, thing. Where do you stand on these sorts of um, on these sorts of reunion get-togethers? Well, it's just pure, purely nostalgia, isn't it? There's no other reason for doing it. It's it's fun, I guess. It's a bit of fun, and the fans can go back and kind of relive a bit of their youth. But but I don't see any other purpose to it than just just having you know a bit of nostalgic fun. You don't think that it somehow cheapens the original music we just heard in that clip of "I Want to Be Adored" Ian Brown singing that uh, his uh, soul isn't for sale. Is, is, it, is that not quite the case later on when the, the promoters dangle this very large check in front of them? I guess it does cheapen it a bit, but you know you can't really gainsay the the, the fact that people. There's a demand for this. Um, That's yeah. shown by you, Richard. Well, by- sure, sure. Although I, I don't want to sort of um, it, it to be all about the money because um, I, I don't know the exact ins and outs of it. But the the story that um, their biographer Simon Spence puts around is that uh, Ian Brown and John John Squire got together again at, at Manny, the bass player's mother's funeral, and it was a very sort of personal uh, reconciliation between them. It, it something. Um, about their friendship that had broken down. So I, I think, you know, it wasn't necessarily about money. There's perhaps something about resealing old wounds and, and, and things like that and really trying to kiss and make up in a more fundamental way because bands are gangs and when gangs fall out, you know, it, it can be bloody. So um, I think we have to perhaps look on the human side of it as well as the uh, the commercial side but of tell it. Tell me then, Richard, when you're in, the, um, when you're in Heaton Park... At yeah. the end of June, I, yeah. I'll try and fill listeners in on. Obviously, you can't see Richard, but uh, he's a haggard and steady <laughs> on. <He's a, laughs> well, and of course, he's not. He's a young and vibrant-looking man. But still, nonetheless, it was a long time ago since that 16-year-old Richard went out to buy the album. What feelings do you think you'll have when they strike up? I want to be adored. They're all about fifty or thereabouts. You're going to be seeing them on a stage. How will you feel? Um, personally, I'll, I'll feel great. I mean, I think you know it's, it's, it's part of the nature of rock music, isn't it? To, to sort of trigger those feelings in people and and for my generation and and for me unashamedly I have to say that that the Stone Roses represent that Um, I mean sure we can all laugh at at Ian Brown's voice and and, you know he'd probably try and do his 
sort of swaggery dancing again and, and it's not quite as bad as Bears I think from the Stone Roses who I think is physically incapable now of, of dancing like a maniac but the Happy um, Mondays you mean uh, the Happy Mondays is, yes it goes yes. to show all of that time all, that, all those years of Manchester have had effect upon the, the, the Clayton cerebellum <laughs> yeah so in fact, the other thing to say I think is New Order are doing some um, an, another reunion gig although without Peter Hook uh, and they're a very important band in this because in January of 1989 Technique came out which was their album um, that they made in Ibiza the year before, which is very much reflecting the influence of um, dance culture and, dare I say, ecstasy, the MDMA on on the music. And that really was also possibly even a better album than um, Stone Roses one in some respects, the real melding of, of, of dance floor and guitar culture. And talking of the New Order, they, of course, were also from Manchester, like the Stone Roses. The Stone Roses were the catalyst which brought about the beginnings of Britpop, which we see so much of today. It does seem as if there's a general sort of uh, a revival of that whole period in the air from the Stone Roses we saw Oasis come along. Now, what, let's just have a talk quickly about Manchester itself. It's a city which it seems to me really came into its own musically with the arrival of punk and the emergence of uh, the Buzzcocks, the Fall magazine. David, what do you think the likes of Stone Roses and then Oasis as we moved into the Britpop era really sort of summed up about the city? Um, I think uh, there was a kind of a, a it was quite interesting because in the late 80s I think I remember reading that there was a surge in in applications for university places at Manchester University so suddenly simply because of the music scene so it was the the place to be and I think it had been a long time since a British city other than London had its own identifiable music scene I remember in the 60s they used to get like Merseybeat and Brumbeat you know, there were identifiable scenes in all the cities but Manchester was was suddenly had its own scene so I, I, I'm not sure if you could say much that there was a there was a kind of undercurrent of dance but beyond that I think there was a lot of uh, different angles going off from it Talking of students applying to Manchester University at that time I was indeed one of them and on that note let's play the student anthem, Cigarettes and Alcohol. That was Oasis singing Cigarettes and Alcohol, the hit from their debut album, Definitely Maybe, back in 1994. It's Oasis's old foes, Blur, who will be stealing the uh, limelight later on this summer when they close the Olympics uh, in a large show in Hyde Park. Um, I feel that this summer, this Olympic summer, has something of Britpop about it. There is definitely a sense of Cool Britannia redux, um, it seems to me, going on. It seems that this is the sort of... uh, end of the it was something that new new labor set in store set in place to try and get the olympics and uh it seems to me that the age of oasis pulp blur has returned to be amongst us again richard yeah i mean i was thinking this as well watching the the jubilee concert as well that there is an inherent nostalgia in in british culture and um a retro revival you can see it even in the olympic plan for this this pastoral scene that danny boyle has, has created for the opening ceremony Britpop really emerged as a sort of laddish, uh, working-class, good-time um, retake on the, the, the great sort of uh, guitar music of the 60s. Noel Gallagher, obviously the, the songwriter and guitarist of Oasis, 
uh, reckon that the uh, the Lars album in 1990 was the first sort of Britpop album. And that famously was an exercise in, in rock classicism. Lee Mavers, the rather strangely devoted um, frontman of that band, famously said something about, um, uh, I can't work in this studio because it doesn't have the original 60s dust on it. Uh, so To not work in a studio if it doesn't have the right sort of dust is, I mean, in an age when we were about to see the explosion in sort of personal technology. Well, yeah. It seems to me to be backward to a point of uh, fetishism. Absolutely, yeah. Although, um, you know, the, the old tunes are often the best and there's a kind of almost an, an, a knees-up kind of aspect about um, uh, Britpop. I mean, I was thinking of how it chimes also with um, Euro 96 that was uh, on at the same time held in, in, in England and the overlap with football culture um was 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 very apparent in in Britpop it was it was real sort of flag waving on the terraces kind of stuff and funnily enough i think the period that came just before it which we were talking about with stone roses happy mondays and also um great albums like primal screams screamadelica uh, they they were a sort of real mixture of styles going on there was quite a radical moment there until about 91 we haven't talked about um grunge actually yet the american influence but that sort of that sort of faded into this retrenchment around meat and potatoes kind of guitar rock. So you mean it was essentially conservative, David? Um, it, Britpop was very backward looking in the sense that Oasis uh, channeled the Beatles, Slade even. You had uh, Bowie was a big influence upon uh, Suede. You had uh, the likes of Wire very much um, influenced the likes of Elastica. Uh, how do you think the mid nineties Britpop explosion? stood up against the original music? I think it referenced it an awful lot. I mean, there was possibly kind of two strands to it. There was the Oasis, Oasis who were sort of channeling the Beatles, and then there was Blur, who were more into the kind of what you might call the mod side of things, the small faces and the Who and the Kinks and such like. I guess what they did was to channel that and make it, as Richard was saying, I mean, sing-alongable, I think, that, that you can't underestimate the importance of of something anthemic, the, the chance to go to a concert and be with 60,000 people and sing along, which is essentially what an Oasis show was, was like. It was, it's, it's an extraordinary experience and it's a real bonding experience. So I, th- I think what they did was to channel the music and make it loud. I mean, I remember the first time I saw o- Oasis, I was blown away just by the sheer volume of the thing. It was, it was a wall of sound, a wall of noise coming at you. And I think that's what they did. They just maybe just just turned up the noise, turned up the volume level. Bring the noise, as yeah. their old hero yeah. uh, Slade yeah, once I mean, the, put it. The apogee of it for Oasis, wasn't it, was was the Nebworth concert in 1996, which, again, that's the year I was just talking about. And, and that was a massive event. And, and really, you know, it didn't get any better for them for after that. And frankly, uh, 1997, when Vanity Fair famously did the, the cover with Liam and, and Patsy Kensett uh, in, in bed, it was sort of... The tipping point to, you know, to the slippery slope, and and then we had their great uh, "Be Here Now" behemoth album with, you know, I think there was a picture of a of a car going into a swimming pool onto it, and then it was real, just rock cliche a go go. They had their rivalry with Blur, uh, who have reformed and will be ending the Olympics with a big show in uh, Hyde Park, along with the specials and various others. Damon Albarn, Blur singer, has spoken since of um, of being somewhat ambivalent about uh, representing the Olympics, which he fears has become too corporate in its um, setup. Should bands such as Blur now and Oasis and the likes of them back in the days of Cool Britannia and Tony Blair when he invited Noel Gallagher to Number 10 Downing Street, for instance, should they be so easily institutionalised, Richard? 
Uh, that's a big question. Um, that's why you're here. Answer them, Richard. <laughs> the bigger, the better. Well, Noel and, and and Damon Albarn were both, I think, invited to number ten, and, and and Damon turned it down precisely because he didn't want to go that far in terms so of being endorsed by the establishment. Um, well, I, possibly, possibly. I, I I don't really know. Um, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, Damon Orman's become a very fascinating, interesting, diverse musician. I mean, he's got this Dr. D opera, which is um, opening, I think, in its its fullest um, form now at ENO very soon. And Blur, there, there's a great, again, a great sort of generational um, interest in, in seeing them play again. And uh, they were recently given a, a big Brit award, uh, weren't they, for lifetime achievement. So it's a kind of thank you to the fans, perhaps, as much as anything, Um whether they do more material or not, he's being very cagey about that. But uh, Damon's a very nimble, um, influential musician. So I think if he if he thinks that there's more music to be made with Blur, then that's a good thing. If it's just for the money, well, yeah. So as as well as uh, Blur playing this summer, Suede are headlining the Hop Farm Festival. Um, last year, Pulp reformed. They played again this year at the Coachella Festival in California. If you're a real Britpop enthusiast, you could even track down Dodgy, who have an album out. Um, the question is, how have they dated these bands? Let's have a listen to Pulp's Disco 2000 and have a think about how they've done post-2000. When I came round to call, you didn't notice me at all. David, we've all had that um, experience where you get wildly enthusiastic about something um, and then a few decades later you're a bit more grown up and you look back and you cringe. Um, now we're all fully grown. We look back at the likes of Pulp. Were they worth it? Pulp certainly were. Um, I think they're probably one of the most I mean, enduring bands from that era. I mean, listening to that, you listen not just to the song but the production. It has a kind of a fullness to it which I think uh, endures. Um, listening back to the Stone Roses album, there's something kind of quite thin about it um and it, it does sound quite dated but i think pulp pulp just kind of they endure i think i think was pulp also took much longer to get going they were around they've um, been around for a long, for a long time. time whereas yeah. the stone roses i mean i i agree with you about the production mm. on that it does have a slightly sort of tinny mm. quality yeah. to it um richard how do you think the uh, likes of uh, pulp oasis and so on have dated well, Oasis are no more, obviously, but continue in the sort of proxy forms of um, Noel Gallagher's Flying Birds and, and Liam's BDI, who really are just on the same treadmill of, of almost pub rock. Um, I think Jarvis Cocker from Pulp is, is more of a radio DJ now, isn't he? A very kind of a vulcular, almost Stephen Fry of, of, of indie rock kind of figure. Um, some of it stands up. Some of it is definitely of its time, but that's what pop and rock music is, isn't it? It seems that to me it was a, a very white form of music, that uh, in that respect, if one looks nowadays at the sort of music which is uh, most prevalent, it's R&B, it's hip-hop, it's urban, dubstep, all of which is um, has a black British or black American um, basis. Britpop was a very white form of music. Yes, well, we've, we've touched on that before, really, and it's it's kind of nostalgia. It's it's retro nature. Um, 
yeah, I mean, you talk to musicians these days and you wonder if they'll ever pick up a guitar again. Um, who knows? That then It all goes in cycles, doesn't it? I mean, there may, there'll be some point at which somebody decides to do something else with a guitar, which is uh, interesting and, and new. I think some of it was about just rediscovering the guitar. I think the, the guitar had disappeared as, a, as, a, as an instrument, as a cultural... In the, le- in the late know, 80s. Yeah, absolutely. And suddenly it, it came back again. And since then, I think... What we've seen is how much people can be done with what you know what is on paper a very limited format: bass, drums, guitar, voices. Actually, you can still do a, a huge amount with that. So where do you think that discovery or that rediscovery led? In as much as uh, following Britpop, we moved into the era of the likes of Stereophonics, um, Travis sort of a very uh, middle-of-the-road form of uh, what was called indie music, and then Coldplay, big stadium yeah. rock, and then we moved into what was dismissively and r- rather brilliantly called Landfill Indie, <laughs> the endless sub-libertines bands who clogged mm. up the airwaves. And it seems that that rediscovery of the guitar has led to a sort of cul-de-sac. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess it has. Um, but I think, as, as Richard was saying, I think the most interesting thing to come out of that period was Damon Albarn. I think, I think the, the irony is that the, the, the single that won the so-called Battle of the Bands, Country House, is probably Blur's worst ever song. But, um, but they went on, and he went on to do some re- he's extraordinary stuff, and he's probably our most interesting musical so he's figure. He's the one figure from that era. Absolutely. Who you think are uh, the band Absolutely. who we haven't mentioned, who always were outside the uh, Britpop movement, that um, I think are the elephant in the room, are Radiohead, who are the only band really to keep going and not to have stopped. Richard, how do you think they fit into this? It seems to me that they are actually, whereas they were never part of this scene, so too they're the only band of, the, of, of that period, of that era, who have actually really survived as a proper creative entity. Um, yeah, well, I mean, they, they managed to forge their own path, haven't they, really? Um, I mean, they started off, in a sense, that first album was almost quite enthralled to, to grunge, in a way, the American influences. And then they managed to have their own take, I suppose, on the kind of inheriting the the, the, the Pink Floyd sense of stadium grandeur with some some invention. And then they got into electronic music. Um, but yeah, they, they've managed to innovate in, in the same way, perhaps, that, that Damon Albarn has. Um, and that's that they're now their own sort of going concern irrespective of what's going on around them i should point out that radiohead will be playing here later on this year if you want to see some up-to-date and current music um for those of you who want to go back to the past like richard the stone roses will be playing at the end of june blur will be playing in august in hyde park at the end of the olympics that i'm afraid is all we've had time for following the very stimulating discussion i'd like to thank my studio guests david Cheel and richard clayton thank you very much for listening we're going to play out with a classic Britpop hit, Blur's Park Life. Except on Wednesdays when I get rudely awakened by the dustman. The Arts Podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.